Welcome to another episode of Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. Today we're looking at the value of mending and repairing items. We live in an age of mass production of goods, many created deliberately to either be disposable or not have a very long lifespan. Built-in obsolescence means that we, the consumers, will be going back to buy more in a short time. That keeps the money flowing in, regardless of the cost to the environment. If we are serious about living in ways that are not damaging to the planet, we have to look at our consumption. The Keep Cup movement has been a great example of people learning to use washable items instead of opting for the convenience of disposable. But what items could we spend a little more on when we first buy it, and then only have to buy it again every 10 years or so, or 20, 50 years, instead of getting a bargain, in inverted commas, and having to replace it every year or two? And how much more life could our household items and clothing have if we spent a little bit of time and effort to repair them? Today, I have two interviews for you. One is a catch-up with Chris Hooper, who has been running the Castlemaine Repair Cafe for about four years now. You might have listened to the episode I did in 2018 about the Castlemaine Repair Cafe, where I interviewed Chris and some of her volunteer repairers and some people who took their items to be repaired at the cafe that day. You can listen to that interview in season one of Saltgrass on your podcasting app or go to saltgrasspodcast.com and have a look in season one. The other interview I have for you today is with Lucy Armstrong. Lucy is a keen mender, sewer and op shopper. She was one of the judges at the MASG inaugural sustainability fashion parade in 2019 and she teaches textiles at high school. She is colourful, creative, full of practical advice and warm wisdom. But before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara country, home of the Jajarung people. I pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. First, let's hear from Chris Hooper. I went to her home in Castlemaine on a sunny afternoon. Her laptop is set up on a small desk in her front hallway, and she was furiously tapping away at the keyboard as I approached. She has just gotten involved in the local Greens branch again and was typing an email about refugee rights. She finished the email and we went to her kitchen to record the interview. It was so lovely to be able to sit face to face with someone again after a year of lockdowns and social distancing and phone interviews. You get so much extra information and a deeper sense of the person you're talking to when you're face to face. Chris often drops in at the MASG office as the Repair Cafe is supported and auspiced by the Sustainability Group. We have seen the struggles behind the scenes to work out public liability insurance for the cafe, questions about safety with electrical repairs, the need for more volunteers to help on the day and through the month in between events. Both the Repair Cafe and MASG have recently moved to the Castlemaine Community House. I was curious to hear how it was going at the new venue and if it was hard to start up again after a full year of COVID lockdowns and cancelled events. 
So Chris, I spoke to you back in 2018 about the Repair Cafe and we interviewed some of the repairers and some of the people bringing in repairs and it was going gangbusters back then. It was in the Ray Bradfield Hall every month and I think it had been going for almost a year by that point. So tell me what's happened in the meantime and it's now February 2021 (laughs) and you're still going and you're still doing it as a volunteer and running this whole thing out of your own energy and and passion so tell me how it's been the last couple of years since the last time I spoke to you oh it's been great people love it and we've been really busy last year with COVID we only had two but it has been quietening so we just wait and see what's happening there but on the whole it's been pretty busy and when people come it's always the same you know if their item can be repaired it's very exciting (laughs) it is really nice on the whole it's all just very positive you've moved recently haven't you since since the ray bradford you had almost probably a year at the town hall running the repair cafe from there and and now you're at the community house the ray bradfield is wonderful we'd love to stay there but it's just not big enough it was just getting too cramped and it's gorgeous because it's got a little servery and everything and the park around it and we one time we had the really really free market there and that people poured into the cafe and as well to have a look mostly was great and yes the town hall was just too big and not enough light natural light so now we've moved to the community house i think they really want to have community groups there to bring the community more into the place which is great a good thing and we've only had one cafe there so far and that went well we've got two rooms and one us one a sort of workshoppy room for the electrical and general repairs and one for sewing and waiting and the light is great that's fantastic and we do have a ramp access now I mean you could get into the town hall if you're in a uh, scooter or a chair or something but we couldn't do stairs but this is better I think. I know you track you've got a meter for how much waste you've diverted from landfill so the premise is that if people had thrown out the item that they bring through the repair cafe, it would have yeah. gone to landfill. And so you count all of that, you weigh all the items. Yeah, I've just had a look at the figures and I haven't got the exact figure, but it's over a thousand kilos, which is wonderful. Amazing. And what makes you as a community member want to give this much of your time and energy to a project like this? Oh, well, it started off, I heard about one starting in Bendigo and I thought, oh, great, I'll go and use the machine that's a great idea and then I thought oh we could have one here but I've always just been a bit obsessed about you know not over consuming and about not throwing things away so it just sort of feeds into that I just hate this chucking away stuff and buying new all the time when we're in full swing and there isn't COVID we have all sorts of reading materials on environmental stuff and cafes and repair and whatever so while people are waiting because it's first in first serve sort of thing and numbering system you can sit at the waiting table and talk to people or have a cup of tea or coffee and sometimes people make biscuits and and then we would you know serve food and the food's really part you know for the repairers because it's over lunchtime a bit and they really work hard so it's Mm. nice to give them something but we just say you know donation make enough for people who are there and yeah and the volunteers too you know that Mm. 
it's good to offer some food, I think. And sometimes in the past, I know a couple of people have come just for the food, which is fine. I think that's a great community thing anyway. Yeah. So I know you're involved in other elements of sustainability and activism. Tell me a bit about your personal story. How did you get involved in all of this and, and why do you keep going? Oh, well, it's just concern about the environment and, you know, worried about climate change and with throwing things away. A lot of things we get are plastic and which is that's petroleum. So we're just using this really quite precious stuff that's been made over... I don't know, thousands of years or whatever, and we just chuck it away. So, yeah, I think it's just that environmental thing. Gardening to grow a bit of food, which ultimately is a way of cutting back on the transportation of food, I guess, and caring for the land, so trying to improve the soil, planting trees. How have you seen repair cafes generally grow? What have you noticed of this as a movement, the repair cafe movement? Oh, well, there's just more happening all the time. And... What do you hope for the future of the Castlemaine Repair Cafe at this point in time? Are you happy to keep going as the the leader? Are you looking for more help? Yes, I would love more help. I'd love to step back a bit, even though it's only once a month. And it's just, I just make sure there's something in the paper, keep an eye on the Facebook page, and just send out, at the moment with COVID, have to ask who's willing to come and volunteer, because not everyone's willing at the moment. So it has, it's a bit more limited in terms of helpers now but yeah I'm hoping it continues and we'd we'd just appreciate a bit more input so it's not just me. If it was really going gangbusters what would you see what would be the ideal? Last time I spoke to you you had a few ideas around having permanent almost like a shop or something where people could donate stuff and people have repaired it. Oh that would be lovely I definitely know about that happening in Scotland (laughs) where they've got some wonderful, you know, zero waste by, I don't know, last year or something. Fantastic. So they have repair cafe, shopfront, government-assisted remakeries. So there's remaking things and then there's selling it. It's fantastic. That would be wonderful. And someone's talking about an op shop in town, but I I don't know if it's going to happen because we've got plenty of op shops, but where we could donate stuff that, people don't want because people do want to give us things that they don't use anymore and we don't have storage and we could test them for electrical things and the money would go to an environmental organisation or something like that for those things but yeah that would be fabulous I mean I just want to see decent repair shops happening again (laughs) but the repair cafes are great because it's a community that people volunteer from the community so it's sort of community helping community mm. which is lovely but yeah just to see less things being thrown away would be wonderful mm. just somehow changing that attitude about oh I can just get another one mm. but then there's people who don't have the money to just get another one you know yeah. well it's interesting isn't it with things like kettles and clothes and everything so cheap oh. which we know is not yeah. great in oh. terms of how they're produced but it is cheaper usually to get a new one than to go to someone and pay for it to be repaired which is why repair shops don't exist but if the repair cafe is free for people then maybe it's still worth it yeah and then well we had someone at someone's toaster come in that was a smeg like really a hundred hundred dollars or something for a toaster and it was only a year old my sunbeam that's about 30 has just conked out (laughs) 
And so this one, they opened it up at the cafe and it was had all this computery stuff in it, you know, motherboard or something. Mm-hmm. So, and just too hard. So she was going to get on to the company, which mm-hmm. was probably a good idea. But yeah, it's just, it's not like we used to buy things that would just last a long time. I've still got an Electrolux, I don't know, it's a 1950s at least vacuum cleaner. It's got Bakelite on it <laughs> and it's fine. Mm. They were actually built to last yeah. from the get-go. Right. They weren't built to last five years. Yeah, there's this lovely thing I put on the reading table. It was in the good weekend for the two of us. And it's this young boy, he's about 10, and he goes through bins <laughs> and finds computers. You know, people just chuck out their computers in the bin and his mother took him to the Bauer's famous repair place and food bank, all sorts of things, in Marrickville in Sydney. And he was really wanting to get involved. And then eventually one of the repairers at the repair cafe then sort of took him on. This boy, he gets these computers and fixes them up and, oh, it's fantastic. That was Chris Hooper talking about the Castlemaine Repair Café. In my chats with Chris outside of the interview, she mentioned a global movement that various repair cafés around Australia and the world have been getting behind. It's called the Right to Repair. It's something that I certainly hadn't thought about, and I imagine many others haven't either. But there are certain legislations, and even the contracts that manufacturers make with us, the consumer, written into all of that tiny writing, and we tick the box and don't read any of it. In that information is sometimes little conditions about the warranty being voided if we take the item to get repaired at a third-party repairer. And so there's a growing movement that recognises that consumers will purchase a new item instead of repairing it if repair is made too difficult, and that for the sake of the planet's resources, and also for the sake of our own hip pockets, we ought to have the right to repair things. There is an article in the conversation that looks at this issue if you're curious to find out more about the right to repair movement. Go to the episode page at saltgrasspodcast.com for the link. Now I have an interview with Lucy Armstrong, and we have a chat about textiles and mending and repair of clothing. We've covered the textiles industry in several shows now, And Lucy is one of the many amazing local textile enthusiasts who had come on board to help plan a bigger and better follow-on event from the first MAZG Sustainable Fashion Parade. We were calling it the Conscious Clothing Festival, and unfortunately, all plans had to be put on hold as the pandemic emerged. Go to saltgrasspodcast.com and search for the episodes on conscious clothing and ethical apparel if you're interested to hear more on this topic. Fast fashion really is a huge problem in terms of waste, water pollution, microplastics, ethical treatment of workers, petroleum use, and on and on and on. As mentioned in those previous episodes, here are some fast facts about fast fashion. The fashion industry produces 10% of all humanity's carbon emissions, and it's second only to the oil industry. It's the second largest consumer of the world's water supplies and pollutes the oceans with microplastics. Up to about 85% of textiles go into landfill each year as people throw out clothing that is ripped, torn or damaged or has stains on it or they're just tired of it. And a lot of the stuff that gets taken to op shops with good intention for it to be sold on and for someone else to use it actually goes to the rag trade or ends up in landfill. 
That 80% of textiles that gets disposed of each year, that's enough to fill the Sydney harbour every year. So Lucy's taken all of this is that we should extend the life of the clothes we have as much as possible via mending. But my question to her was how does she, as a teacher of teenagers, get them or any of us excited about darning socks? So I'm going to be talking to you today about darning and mending and making do with what you've already got. And I think that a lot of people have lost the skills of especially darning socks and things like that. Most people probably know how to thread a needle and and maybe patch something a little bit. I do it very, very occasionally. I'm going to say I like my confession in in all of this is that I'm a terrible sewer and I have no skill (laughs) set. I've got a very, very small skill set, I should probably say. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think it's kind of, I'm a teacher and it's a bit like maths. Like people say, oh, I just can't do maths. And I think this is the same thing. It's a skill. You can learn it. Yeah. It's about whether or not you're motivated. Yeah, it's the same with the art too. Like I've taught art in the past to adults and a lot of them had very low confidence and we'd be like, I was always terrible at it. Everyone told me not to bother because I don't have any talent. And this idea of talent is very misleading, I think, because... The majority of what art is, is learning a skill and a bit of hand-eye coordination and focusing on detail and all of that stuff. And persistence and I reckon, you know, hard work beats talent any day of the week, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the ability to make mistakes and keep going instead of counting yourself out of the race after one or two mistakes. Yeah. And I think that's why mending was so prevalent was because people had to you know that was the motivation it was like you either threw the socks out and didn't have any socks or you mended them and then you got to wear them for another you know 12 months or whatever or if you didn't mend them you had to knit them from scratch again so it's much easier to mend yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, exactly but I don't think it's ever been lost and I think there's a certain amount of pleasure you get from it and I think a lot of people associate it with being looked after like I know for me if mum darned something like a jumper or a pair of socks, it was an act of love. Yeah. So it was also a way of, if you're doing it for somebody else, of showing that you really care for them. Yeah, that's nice. So I think that that's a, yeah, that's been a prevailing motivation. Yeah, definitely. And I think the flip side of that and the reason a lot of people maybe have moved away from it is that they see it as a chore and they see it as their clothes being patched means that they aren't affluent and they want to feel affluent so they get new ones. So there's there's a whole psychology in that too, I think. But I do think we like shiny new things and so if, if I, I can be honest and say there's probably times when I was younger when if something sort of started to fall apart, a little part of me would go, great, I can get another one. Yeah. Something different <laughs> yeah. or something brighter or something better and so... Yeah. And I think in our age of fast fashion where everything is so cheap and dirty, you can just go out and get a pair of socks for not much money. And there's also kind of designed obsolescence where a lot of stuff doesn't last more than five washes. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think things with so much elastine in them do fall apart and have holes in them faster than things that are made of pure cotton or wool. Yeah. 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 Although I found, like I buy a lot of wool, like a fine merino knit, and I, I think I done now more than ever <laughs> because of that, especially if it's a mild grey, that can really tend to get holes in it. And because I love it and it's warm, I don't, you know, I don't want to downgrade it to the rag bag. So I'll darn that a lot more than I probably would have before too. And I need to be really brutally honest. It makes me feel less guilty about watching TV if I'm done <laughs> doing it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear, I've got to do some out. darning. I better watch some... 
Yeah. <laughs> Some of that show that the telly on. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. So I know basic thread a needle and maybe sew up a seam that's coming apart, but patching, putting a patch on, I either make it an artistic statement and make it big and bold and obviously not a great job. But to do that well or to darn something, which is basically like in darning you're weaving the thread in and out of itself over and over again to create yeah. to create this sort of strength of, of reinforcement. That's that's a whole nother level that I have never gone to. Yeah, and I think there's a few different families of mending. So there's like the the woven darning that you would do on a knitted jumper or a pair of socks, and that's often done in a way that's the same colour as the fabric, as the, the fibre in whatever the garment is. So if you've got a red pair of socks, you use red wool and you would create an outline around where the hole is and then create your warp and weft threads and then you would weave your piece of wool that you're using to darn it, your thread, and almost make it invisible. And then there's darning like you mentioned, which is I suppose what I would call mending, which is where if it's woven fabric and it's a piece of clothing, you would either back it and then stitch over the top. And I use a lot of sashiko stitching, which is a Japanese style of visible stitching that's decorative. And so what that does is, like you said, creates kind of a showy uh, sort of look at me, I've been a hole and now look how pretty I am. (laughs) (laughs) And And then there's another version where you can actually put the patch over the top and then um, stitch it really invisibly around the edges so it just looks like a patch. There's no visible threads. And then there's, and I've done this a few times on jumpers, where I've got a this great sewing machine that's actually a felting machine. So you're not threading up a sewing machine and stitching things together. It's literally a cluster of needles that push fibre. You buy like woolen fibre not spun but just like loose wool tops and you can take a tiny patch of that and lay it over where there's a hole not a very big hole it doesn't work for big holes but um like on a woolen jumper and you can use these needles to shove the fibers in between the other fibers and it actually creates a closing off of the hole and that's pretty cool you can do it in the same color as the wool of the jumper or the sock or you can do it in a completely different color and so I've done that where it creates like these sort of fuzzy dots across the surface of, of a fine knit jumper and it, it just looks kind of, again, decorative, but it serves a purpose of covering up the hole. So there's lots of different ways to do it and that's the joy of, if you have no clue, YouTube. YouTube is the most incredible teacher, a very generous teacher. And so that's where probably I started learning was I saw something and had a crack and made a mistake and kept trying and so I learnt from my mum, she taught me how to darn properly with a proper darner's mushroom. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're like a round mushroom-shaped wooden handle with a rounded top, and that sort of sp- spreads out the sock or whatever it is that you're darning so it would be the shape it would be when it was on your body. Yeah, you can see it better, and it means that when you darn it, it's going to look better on rather than be pinched and tight because once you put your sock on, you've stretched this, the shape out a bit. That's what happens to me all the time when I do these things. Yeah, yeah you, see? you need one of those, yeah. Good tips. Yep. And it's such a, to me, to my mind, that's such an old-fashioned thing that belongs to a different era, but I think a lot of people still use them. Yeah, oh, for sure, yep, yep. But like you said, it is pretty old-fashioned, so don't buy a new one. Go to the op shop. There's always a fantastic stash at the op shop. Not necessarily every time you go, like you have to be pretty persistent, but 
I do a lot of shopping for haberdashery and threads and zips and vice binding and fabric. Everything yeah, at the op shop's the best place to go. And you're reusing something rather than buying something brand new. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Yeah. So you're a teacher. Do you teach this sort of thing in your classes? Like how do you think young people these days are picking up these skills or not picking up these skills? So in the classes that I teach, I teach year 9s and year 10s and it's an elective and they're often coming in wanting to create something themselves. So usually it's like a pillowcase or, or a pair of shorts or a skirt or a bag and there's a real joy in that for them. They're not necessarily coming in wanting to fix something. They do like the idea, though, of upcycling, so taking something that they've owned and turning it into something a little bit different, like a dress that's got a length that they don't like and wanting to take it up or wanting to adjust things. So in terms of sustainability and teaching it to kids and teaching that idea of look after something and darn it, well, it will last forever, I really reckon that's a challenge to be able to get them excited about that. Yeah. So I think the first step is inspire just to create, inspire to be able to understand thread and fibre and understand what it can and can't do and what the limitations are and what, you know, what incredible options you have. And then that gives birth to the following on of, oh, well, what else can I do and how else could I do this? And that realisation, if you buy something from a shop and it doesn't sit right or doesn't work, you can make it what you want. My inspiration was Pretty in Pink. Do you remember that movie with Maureen Molly Ringwald? <laughs> yes. And she goes to a formal and her dress was a remodeled dress from her mother, I think. And that was the biggest inspiration for me. So I think showing kids what, what can be is really valuable. But yeah, like anything, you can't necessarily force it. It's got to be something that they experience and ask questions about so we will often make something from scratch but then I'll I've done this in the past where you know you bring in and show them things this is what could be or I work with this fabulous woman Michelle Good and she's been a VCE textiles teacher for years and and she's incredibly talented and so she's got these gorgeous journals and books of just samples and things that she's been doing for years and years and years so and I did a textiles course a few years ago. So between the two of us, I know if I was a kid, that's what I love was leafing through uh, books and samples that you could touch and just having a little explore. So I think that can be really valuable. Sustainability is a big part of the curriculum. So there's definitely times that we are talking to kids about where are your clothes coming from and who's making them and what are the conditions like and what are the structures within the textile industry that are problematic <laughs> and what are the ones that mean that you can make informed choices? That's really great. Yeah, it depends what age group really. That and But it's, it's fundamentally about having fun and being inspired and then getting them started on a journey. And a lot of kids come with parents or, or mothers or grandfathers or grandmothers who've done something with them or shown them something that that's started their interest. Yeah, so I guess there's already been someone in their lives that's helped them select that elective that's made them realise that would be a good thing to do. So there's a bunch of other kids who aren't even doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think also if they're making their own outfits or adjusting op shop things, it will make them love that item of clothing more and make them want to mend it if it does start to disintegrate in five or ten years. There's a great video that I'd show them at the start and it's a really old YouTube clip from 
I think it's somewhere in Norway or Amsterdam or maybe in Germany, and it's this incredible street parade where people come out in these amazing jumpers. <laughs> and then at the end, they bring through the woman who made them all, and she's this grandmother who was just this prolific knitter. Wow. And so they put her on this throne <laughs> and they do this big collective community thank you parade to her because she'd made these things. Wow. And so I started off by talking to the kids about if you make something for someone, it's so much more valuable and special than if you go to a shop and buy something. So you know, often you'll say to the kids, oh, do your parents still have something that you made for Mother's or Father's Day from when you are in primary school? And then they start laughing and they talk about the really hideous macaroni spray, <laughs> you know, picture frames that they made or some really crappy bookmark, but their parents still have it. So we kind of come from that that side too. If it's not about perfection, it doesn't have to look shop-bought. It's about where's your heart and soul in it and the real, like trying to instill that value of, if your hands put that together, then it's going to be great. And whoever you love who gets it is going to love it. So That's so true. Yeah. 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 And sometimes the crappier, the better. <laughs> like the really <laughs> – The more quirky. Got this, yeah, the more quirky. Mum's still got this turtle that I made her that in my mind's eye, when I remember it, I think, oh, my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> so gifted. And I saw it about three or four years ago. She cracked it out. And I was like – Oh my God, that is an absolute disaster zone. But she loves it and it's got character. That is funny. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that the if it's given to you by someone that you love and care about and that you know that they've given it to you with love, then you're going to love it no matter what. Julie McLaughlin is a local sewer. She's also known as Julie Red and she runs classes and there are times when she does mending classes. And so if anyone listening is interested in learning more, and I'm keen to work a bit with her just to kind of come in and offer any stuff that I've kind of picked up on the way. It's a really great way to sit and talk. So mending is one of those really beautiful communal tasks, like shelling peas, you know, you sit around and you're doing something and then you're having a conversation and by the end of it, you've finished what you want to do and you're really happy and you've connected with people. So I think, yeah, she's a good person to get in touch with. If you just go online and go to Julie Red Projects, she's, yeah, she's a really good resource. Yeah, local here to Castlemaine. Yeah, yep. And just a really beautiful teacher. She's got a really great manner and great at building community. Yeah, no, she is. Sewers. I did yeah. a I did a sewing class with her many years ago, a beginner's sewing class, because I knew I needed to like confront my demons. <laughs> confront your demons. <laughs> well, seriously, because in that class, I had these massive feelings of inferiority and Aww. like I can't do it feelings come up, yeah, and right. it was high school feelings. It was feelings from way back when I gave up on sewing because I just would get machine rage and just be frustrated all the time. <laughs> And I didn't actually, (laughs) my grandmother was an excellent knitter and textiles creator and so was my aunt, but my aunt was in New Zealand and my mum, she could do it. She did the basics, but she didn't love it and it wasn't a thing that she really reveled in or celebrated. And so for me, it was just, it wasn't sort of instilled in me. And yeah, so I had these leftover feelings from high school and I sat there just sinking in a swamp of these negative emotions and I realized oh my god this is therapy and I just Mm. took a few deep breaths and (laughs) allowed myself to be the slowest in the class and there were a few shining examples in that class of people who made three in the time I made half of one oh never compare (laughs) yourself never compare (laughs) I know but it was interesting to me to realize how much I carried of a negative feeling around sewing yeah yeah that's that's really interesting and I think 
There's a couple of things that I do want to mention about sewing is yeah. this gendered notion of it's what women do. Yeah. Whereas, the, the, you know, of all the students I've taught, there have been so many standout boys who didn't go on with it because it was perceived to be, you know, what the girls do. And I sometimes wonder too about that thing of, you know, if you're a girl and you can't do it, is there, you know, a pressure that, that oh, well, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be able to, which is such a lot of rubbish. Yeah. So totally. my dream is that it just completely becomes nothing to do with gender at all. Yes. Um, and it becomes just, yeah, just a beautiful form of self-expression. Yeah, and a life skill, like cooking and, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, mowing the lawn. You should know how to use your lawnmower. You should know how to sew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so do you feel better about it now? Like have you kind of slayed the dragon? To a degree. I actually bought a second-hand sewing machine, but I haven't used it once. My mum's used it more than I have. <laughs> That's okay. It's there for when you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of mending and darning, I did take a bag full of clothes and some threads and needles to a music festival I went to. Oh, yeah. And I just sat there stitching. And when me and my friends were sitting around the campsite just talking, I'd just pull out the bag and I'd just be stitching. And I didn't think anyone was really noticing. But at the end, several people were like, I'm so impressed that you were doing that. That is so cool. And I was like, it just keeps me, it just gave me something to do with my hands that, you know, because often like festivals are great, but it's also there's a lot of downtime. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that is so true. And so I, I just knocked through a few, and it was just a nice way to do it, and it felt like I could still be social and interactive, mm. but but sort of have something to do as well. And I think it's calming. So like watching someone knitting is very meditative. And I I used to work at this outdoor ed centre, and it was out in the boondocks, and we'd get groups of kids come in for you know chunks of time, and there'd be groups of either boys or or girls. And at the beginning of the year when we were doing our training, one of the women I worked with, her grandma and her two sisters came up to sort of teach us a whole bunch of skills. And there was how to make jams and preserves. They taught us how to dry apples, how to spin, how to knit, how to weave, how to crochet. And the spinning I got quite into. And when we'd have a really rowdy group just before dinner time, kids would be just off their trees like they'd just be you know they'd be just getting dark and that's when teenagers start to get a bit overexcited they get and a bit so wild they do and then and probably adults too but we're all a bit boring but <laughs> if I started spinning you know, say food was taking a little bit longer than we planned and they'd be like what are we gonna do with these kids if I started spinning a boy would come over and he'd be like what are you doing and I'd just say oh just making thread and within five minutes there'd be like seven or eight kids and one or two of them would just kind of wander back off again and wouldn't really be interested. But there'd always be one and say, can I have a go? And I'd be like, yeah, no problem. And they loved the mechanics of it because it was this, you know, this wheel spinning and then there was this smaller thing spinning and then, you know, it was coordinating your hands and pushing the pedal and like everything about it was just this calming, repetitive, clunk, 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 clunk. And so by the time you'd showed a couple of them how to do it, dinner would be ready and you'd have this lovely interaction that just brought everyone's energy levels down to a really kind of nice, yeah, nice level. And that 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 worked a charm. And I've used it since. And knitting like you or darning or sewing in a group is really calming. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know yeah, why. Yeah, for the whole group, not just you. Yeah. And I think there's also a little bit of magic in spinning wool. My grandmother used to spin her own wool. And so you have this bag of, like, fuzzy random stuff and then at the end of it you've got this beautiful thread that can be used for so many things yeah and it's just a little bit magic I think it's yeah like, it's like yeah. this alchemy 
Yep, and I think no one sees anyone doing it anymore. You know, it's done industrially, it's done behind closed doors, so it's nice to have it out on show. It's not just part of the home. No, no. And I don't think there's any point to banging on about why fast fashion is bad and how bad it really is and the litany of, you know, sad things. It's better to go, well, why is the alternative so great and focus on that. I work with a woman. We're kind of trying to get sustainability happening more at school and, you know, I'm all about these kind of very stringent productive things like right we've got these different bins for recycling and and she's from the, coming from the other end of going no we just want kids to love nature if we can get kids to really love the environment then all that stuff will come I think it's interesting because I think that conversation is happening more broadly in the sustainability world and I think that there are a lot of people who are like we need people to understand and love that nature is important and and feel it And there's others who are like, we need renewable power sources, we need to count carbon, we need to, you know, and I think it's actually really important to have both. Yeah. You need the carrot and the stick. We need to not be complacent about how bad current practices are. And we also need to make people love and want to step forward into this future that also is our past in some ways. Reviving some of these lost arts and skills is a really important part of stepping into a bright new future, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why it takes a team to do anything. It's got because everyone's going to have their own little thing. Because I'm a I'm a real doer. I'm like, I just want to get in there and do something. I want something happening right now that gives some results that makes you feel like you're getting somewhere. Whereas she's more philosophical about, well, we need something deeper that's going to last longer. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Both. So both. Both. You're right. Yeah. Totally right. That was Lucy Armstrong talking about mending and dining and getting creative with your clothes. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. My name is Ali Hanley and this is Saltgrass. Links to many of the things discussed can be found in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program is made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. And this program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASC, and Main FM. If you would like to respond to something discussed in the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Salt, salt, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com.